besides that orchestra there today. A uh, couple of people, had, uh, it, it's rumored that some people had called Stan, wondering if they were still doing the orchestra today. And what was your response to them, Stan? Just drive slowly, take your time, and you can get here. And it worked. Take your time, drive slowly, and you can get here. It's the other idiots out there that are not doing that you need to worry about. Isn't that right? I mean, we Kansans are tough. I live here now, so I wasn't born here, but I got here as quick as I could. All right? Maybe your fault I didn't get here sooner. <laughs> anyway, good to see you this morning. I'm glad you made it. Just drive carefully and... Uh, it's interesting to me how most of us can get up and go to work on Monday morning in weather like this, but we can't come to church. Yeah, looking for an excuse to stay home, right? Right. Well, uh, an elderly gentleman was trying to shed a couple of pounds from the holidays, and so he began a habit, a discipline of walking through his neighborhood for about two miles. He had this path that he would walk on a daily basis at the same time every day, except for Sunday. And on one particular day, as he was traveling down his normal path, he happened to notice at a distance a house where a very small little boy was trying to ring a doorbell, but it was too high. He couldn't reach it. He was trying to jump up and trying to ring the doorbell, but he just could not do it. So the elderly gentleman decided he would assist the young man and got off of his beaten path and went up the, the driveway and onto the front porch and said, here, young fellow, let me, let me help you. And he rang the doorbell. And then he turned to the young man and said, now what? Little boy looked at him and said, I don't know what you're going to do now, mister, but I'm going to run. Yeah. You know, if you take a look at the Christian race, our lives are often defined by a race. I mean, time and time again, the Bible talks about the lives that we're living in Christ and it begins to compare it to a race that we're running. It's not just any kind of race, but it's a marathon race. How many miles is a marathon? 26 and a little bit. I think about 360 some odd yards. It's a long way. Anybody in here ever ran a marathon? Anybody in here ever thought of running a marathon? Anybody had nightmares that you were running a marathon? Anybody, if you ran a marathon today, you would croak sometime about the half mile mark. All right, that's most of us. I played uh, outdoor soccer on Friday afternoons with our grandchildren down in Texas. And I don't know if you're noticing the sunburn, but it was 70 plus degrees down there on Friday afternoon. And uh, we were in the sun and we played soccer. Patty and I did. That is not an old man sport. But uh, I quickly realized how much I'm just in bad shape. There's just no way around it. So I don't think it's really my age. I think it's just the fact that I'm out of shape. I haven't ran in a long time, but I used to run about 60 miles a week. It's a long, time, long way, isn't it? I did that for a number of years. And people used to say, you know, Boz, you can eat anything you want and never gain weight. Well, that was true when you run 60 plus miles a week. But I did look like a toothpick. I think I weighed less when I was 30 years old than I did when I was 18 years old. And I had, believe it or not, a 31-inch waist. You don't believe that, do you? Well, that was a long time ago. <laughs> but I always wanted to run a marathon, but I never really got around to running a marathon. Uh, I, have, I thought I'd had pretty good time, and so I started reading that those guys run, you know, 26-plus miles at about four minutes flat a mile for 26 miles. 
I never got that fast. And so I quickly became discouraged when I realized how fast and how far they were running. I, I knew I would never really be competitive. But the interesting thing in the race that we are called to run, which is considered a marathon race in the Christian race, we're not competing against one another. We're not running from anyone, and we're not running from anything. We are running to something. We have an objective, we have a purpose, and we have a goal, and that is to cross the finish line. And we are to run our race as a marathon with the same kind of discipline and determination and the effort and the energy and all that it takes to run a marathon. We, as Christ followers, are to describe the race that we're to run in the Christian life as compared to that of a marathon. It's a, it, we're, we're, we're in it for the long haul, so to speak. And, and for most of us, it's going to seem like a 26-mile-plus marathon. And there are some of us going to reach around the mid-mark, and we're going to wonder, when is it over? There's some of us that uh, have been running for quite some time, and we have this tendency to believe that I, I have been running, I have in the, been in this race for quite some time, so now I think it's my turn to sit and to be ministered to and just to relax. But I find nowhere in the Scriptures where it says that, that the race that we're in as Christ followers, there is an opportunity or time for us to sit back and to allow others to continue running the race and for us to just sit back, sip lemonade, and, and sit in the shade and just exist. And so the Apostle Paul, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing to the church, uh, the Hebrew letter to the church, a letter to the Hebrews in which he is asking and inviting these particular people that he's addressing to run a marathon race and to run it well, to run until you cross the finish line. He knows that they're going to be tempted to give up somewhere along the way. They're going to reach exhaustion. They're going to be physically, mentally, and emotionally exhausted. They're going to want to sit and to relax and to stop or maybe just completely no longer. I don't want to do this anymore. And he's seeking to encourage them in Hebrews chapter 12 to persevere, to endure, to never give up. And so I want us to stand and let's look at Hebrews chapter 12 together. We're going to read verses 1 through 4 and uh, going to stretch our legs one more time, get the circulation going. Aren't you glad we have heat in the worship center today? This is a march, people. We're going to pray for warmer weather. And believe that sometime soon, between now and August, it will come. But until then, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 12. Let's read it together. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Let's pray. Lord, it's our joy and it's our delight to be here this morning and to be challenged by this verse. And I pray that you would use this verse to help us understand that um, the race isn't over until you say it's over. 
And unless we cross the finish line, we are to continue to run the race that you have set before us, the race that you have ordained for us. We are to run it in such a way that we are to exhaust ourselves for the purpose of crossing the finish line. Lord, I pray that you would use every ounce of energy and determination and effort that we have in order to make that possible in our individual lives and the life of your church. I know our church has been here 100 years, but the race is not over for us. This race for us as a church will not be finalized unless you call us individually home or unless you return for your bride. That's us. And so, God, I pray that you would help us understand how we might possibly run this race that is filled with circumstances and difficulties and situations that are beyond our control and sometimes even beyond our own strength to overcome. But, God, we know that all things are possible to those who believe. We know that you are greater in us than anything we could possibly face. So I pray that you would instill and encourage us today to run the race that you have called us individually and corporately to run as a church, and that you would instill within us the discipline that is necessary and the effort to make that possible. Lord, use this time in your word to strengthen our faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the question as we sit and as we take a look at this passage of Scripture. How then do we endure to the finish line? How do we endure to the finish line? The book of Hebrews is an interesting letter. It's a letter to the Hebrews. And if you understand anything about the letter to the Hebrews, you know that a Hebrew is what? What is a Hebrew? An Israelite, right? A descendant of Abraham. Well, we automatically conclude that because this letter was written to Christians, these are not Hebrews that worship just Jehovah, but they are Judeo-Christians who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. They're brothers and sisters of the faith. They, like us, have placed their faith and trust in Christ, but before they did, they followed Jehovah. They practiced Judaism. They followed the laws and the traditions of, of the Israelite people, but at some point, they came face-to-face with this incredible power of the gospel and they placed their faith and trust in Jesus. They were once descendants of Abraham who followed the law. Now they discovered and realized that Christ was the promised Messiah. They had placed their faith and trust in him and now they were they they have entered the race of the Christian life. They were running the race as a Christian. They were following hard after the example of Christ. Who are these Hebrews? To what letter uh, was this intended for what people group? Many believe that more than likely this was a large congregation. It was probably one of the largest congregations in the early church. Some have concluded that possibly this letter was written to the Hebrews, those descendants of Abraham who came to faith in Christ that resided in Jerusalem. Obviously, Jerusalem was the largest church, or maybe somewhere in Judea. We don't know the exact destination of this letter to the Hebrews, but we do know that it was intended for those who were of Israel, descendants of Abraham, who had professed faith in Christ and who have been on a journey now. They've been on a race. They've been running this Christian race. They've been living for Christ for quite some time. So much so, in fact, that now they're under incredible scrutiny. They are experiencing tremendous persecution. There are hardships and circumstances and situations that are beating down upon this church, and there are many in the church that are at the point of exhaustion to the point that they're willing to throw in the towel to walk away and to quit. We call that in our church today backsliders. 
Remember the old phrase? They're backsliders. Those of you in the back back there, you're backsliders. You start up front, out here with the religious and the spiritual, except for Brad. Cindy, you're all right, but not Brad. And then you just start, you know, you, every Sunday you go back a different pew and a different row and different row to a point you're in the back row, and then you just kind of backslide. You, you just quit. Now, it's obvious with nearly 6,000 members at Emmanuel Baptist Church, we have a lot of backsliders. Would you agree? People who at one point had great intentions of running the race and finishing their course, but because of the circumstances and the situations and the difficulties and the hardships and the persecutions and the sacrifice and the cost involved in following Jesus, to the point of exhaustion and desperation, they just threw in the towel and quit. I think if all of us were honest in this room this morning, we would probably have to admit, and maybe even those on the internet today would probably have to admit, there are times when we reach physical, emotional, spiritual, and mental exhaustion to the point where we said, you know what, I can't do this anymore. I'm tired. I'm physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually exhausted. I'm, I'm bankrupt. I have nothing more to give, and I just want to just drop out. Have you ever been like that? Have you ever reached a circumstance that you couldn't overcome or a battle that you couldn't defeat or a, an enemy that just seemed too large and, and you've exhausted all your natural abilities in trying to proceed and trying to break through and trying to move forward that all of a sudden you just reach that point of just total exhaustion and say, you know what, it's, it's, not, it's just not worth it. I quit. I'm convinced we live in a culture of quitters. My marriage is too hard, I quit. If the life that I've built for myself is too difficult, I'll just slide on out to oblivion. If the church I belong to gets too complicated and too difficult, I'll run to another church where they don't have any problems. Right. Well, we have a culture of, of, of quitters, too, in the Christian life. And, and if I belong to a church that demands too much of me, I'll find one that doesn't demand anything of me. And so we have built a church of consumers, and they're moving from church to church to church looking to be fed rather than to serve. Now, don't get me wrong. I think we need to be fed, but we're called to serve, not to be fed. We are to feed ourselves, and we are called to serve. We're called to run the race, to exert ourselves, to exhaust ourselves, and then give even more of that. As we talk about the greater things, there have been many of us in this auditorium this morning who have been a part of a building program for, for decades. Some of you have been, been here so long that you can't remember when we didn't have a get out of debt program or a let's build the next building program. And you've been giving to a building fund for decades. Wouldn't it be great finally to reach the finish line of this greater things campaign, this $1.5 million thing that we have, and to reach that point to say, let's burn the note and no longer ever again get under a debt that would hurt the cause of Christ and facilitate us running the race that God has called us to run as a church. We made a pretty good dent from 4.4 to 1.5 in the last four plus years. And there's some of us say, you know what, I've, I've done my part. I've given all I can give. I've served in all I can serve. I've done everything. And so we just kind of kick back and let somebody else pick up the slack. We are not called to do that. And as long as we have breath and as long as we have life, we have been called to serve.
This is not a time to quit. It's not a time to sit back. It's not a time to not become involved in fulfilling that which God has called us to do, but it's time for us to then invest what God has given us for a greater cause and for a greater glory, and that is the glory of the Father for the cause of the gospel for those who need to know him and who need to be discipled. So how do we then persevere when everything within you wants to give up and wants to quit and wants to throw in the towel, wants to take a back seat, wants to drop out, maybe just become a part of the crowd and not be a, a real you know, visible part, not to be up front, not to be serving, but just kind of drop out and, and, and drop out into oblivion, hoping that no one sees you. I mean, we've got plenty of exit. You can come and go, and, and people may not even notice whether you're here or not, and we can do that for quite some time. How do we avoid getting there spiritually? Well, first of all, there are three things that I want us to look at. If we hope to avoid that, we need to, first of all, we need to foster then the proper disciplines. What are those disciplines? If you notice in the text, I see that there are five of them. And these five disciplines are lined out in verse 1 alone. And there are five disciplines that we need to foster that will help us then exercise then the endurance that is necessary. There's a single word in three of these verses that is the same, and it's the word endurance. So how do we then endure to the finish line until we reach the point that we have crossed the finish line and God either calls us home to glory or he returns for us as his bride? Well, notice, first of all, in the first little phrase of the first verse, he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, I see there that he's asking us to exercise the discipline of reaching for encouragement. Now, let's face it, there are times when all of us need some encouragement. I don't care who you are, how strong you think you are, there are times in your life, especially in the race that you've been called to run, which is in a marathon, you're going to need some encouragement. I mean, who of us, when we were in Upward in the last couple of Saturdays, some of us here, we, we encouraged those playing, yeah, run, 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 dribble, 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 fight, 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 go for the ball. You're encouraging them. Why do we do that? Because we know that kids get tired and they need an encouraging word, right? Not a discouraging word, but an encouraging word. And all of us sometimes need encouragement. And he's saying we need to reach for encouragement. Where do you get that? He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great cloud of witnesses. Now, in Hebrews chapter 11, he has just given us a long list of heroes of the faith. And these heroes of the faith are incredible people of faith. There's Moses and there's Abraham and there's all sorts of wonderful examples, these heroes of the faith. And he lists those in Hebrews 11 to help us understand that these people not only live by faith, but they live faithful lives. And after he lists those in Hebrews 11, he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, there are some who have concluded that this means that we're in an arena and we are competing and they're in the stands, these heroes of the faith and these faithful heroes to to bring glory to God and to obey and to honor his will in their lives. They are cheering us on. That's not really the image here, I don't think. They're not in a cloud. It's a metaphor. And they're not really in an arena, so to speak. But they're out here for us as we open the word of God to study their lives, to determine their faith, and to see how faithful they were. These lives that we read from the word of God are there to encourage us. They are there to inspire us, to help us see that there are men and women in the Old Testament that have lived out their lives. Sure, they face difficult circumstances and, 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 and incredible odds. 
Yet in spite of all that, they exercised faith in God and they were found faithful and they followed and fulfilled the will of God for their lives. They fulfilled the purpose that God had for them. I don't know of a better place to go in order for us to get encouragement than to the Word of God to open the Old Testament passages and to read about Moses and and Noah and David and Abraham, these wonderful people of faith. They're there to inspire us. And we know that they weren't perfect. Every single one of them had a major character flaw and, and at least blew it big time one time. And yet, even in spite of that, God forgave them, he restored them, and they were counted as faith people who were faithful to the task that God had set before them. But when you need encouragement, there are people who have lived out their lives well, who have left this legacy of faith that are there to encourage and inspire us. I think about Emmanuel Baptist Church in the hundred years of our history, of the people that have preceded us in this church that were not only people of faith, but people who are faithful. And we today are products of their faith and their faithfulness. And at some point, there are going to be people that will come after us when we're long and gone who will then become a product of our legacy of faith and our faithfulness. And God will build upon our faith and our faithfulness upon the next generation and the next generation and the next generation until he comes. And one day he will come for his bride. And we'll all be with him forever. And what an incredible thing that will be for us to meet people in heaven who were here a hundred years ago. And for us to be able to thank them for the legacy of faith and faithfulness they exhibited that we today are a product of. That, that life of, of, of faith and that faithfulness still touches us today. And so we need encouragement. You need encouragement today? Open the Old Testament and go to the book of Hebrews. I mean, chapter 11, the letter to the Hebrew church. And read there about these wonderful people of faith. And look in the Old Testament and see the odds and the circumstances, situations that they faced. And be encouraged about how they were people of faith and how they exhibited their faith. And say, you know what? If they can do it, I can do it too. So we need to reach for encouragement from time to time. And I think that's what he did here when he listed Hebrews chapter 11. He listed all these people of faith to encourage and to inspire the people. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't stop. Don't throw in the towel. Don't walk away. There have been people that have preceded you that were tempted to do that, but they didn't. Now be inspired and encouraged by their faith and their faithfulness. So we need to reach for encouragement. Second, we need to remove all distractions. It's interesting in the text, he then says, and let us... Lay aside every weight. Let us, those of us who are believers, those of us who are Christ followers, let us lay aside to cast aside, to stop, to remove. Let us lay aside. Let us cast it off. What? Every weight, every burden, every hindrance, every encumbrance, everything. Now, what does it mean by weight? It doesn't really explain to us or define what weight means. Just anything that may weigh us down. For example, let's say that I may decide, you know, I'm, I'm, I have a Christian race that I'm supposed to run and, you know, something I'm supposed to do, and I'm going to move this stuff here for a minute. Is there any money in there? And let's decide, you know, I, I've just decided that, that I'm going I'm to walk around in my Christian life with this chair. 
and I'm just going to carry this everywhere I go because I've decided I needed this. Now, this, this weight that he's talking about is not necessarily a weight that is sinful within itself or wrong or evil. Well, there are weights that are evil. There are weights that, that should not be existing in our lives that weigh us down, that, that are encumbrances, that are hindrances. But this chair is not evil in and of itself. It's just a chair. So, but I've decided and determined that somehow I need to take this chair in case I want to sit down sometime. I can put it down. I can sit down and just take a rest. So I'm going to take this chair with me everywhere I go, and I'm going to run my Christian race with this chair. So, well, it's not an evil, but I... So why would I carry this everywhere I go? You think this would be an encumbrance? You think this would be a hindrance? How far do you think I could run a marathon holding this chair? You think it would be a a weight that's not necessary? Duct tape. Even I had duct tape put on my back, it would still be an encumbrance, a hindrance. I know you use duct tape for a lot of stuff. You know, he says, hey, you may think you need it, and it may not necessarily be evil, but you need to cast it aside. You know, I'm convinced there are a lot of things that somehow we have convinced ourselves that we need them, that they're necessary, and all they do is weigh us down. And, and the reason why so many of us are exhausted is because we've piled on so much stuff that's not necessary in, into our lives and on our plates today that, w- that we just don't have time and we don't have room for God. Now these things are not necessarily evil or wrong, but they weigh us down. And he says you need to cast those aside and focus on the things that are really eternal and the things that are really important. He says let us lay aside every weight, but notice he also says and the sin that that's, that clings so closely. He's saying by that is that we need to resist sin's temptation. Not only should I reach for encouragement and remove all distractions, but I must resist sin's deception. Sin is a deceptive thing. And in Scripture, we find many times that sin is almost personified. It acts like a person. And here, sin can, as we see it, it can, it can weigh us down. It can, it can be an encumbrance. It clings to us. I mean, we live in a world that is a sinful world. And we can't live in the world that we live in without getting some of that dirt on us. I mean, it would have been impossible to drive to church today without getting some of that sand and, and all of that muck or, what is it called, snurt, right, on your car. I'm a clean car fanatic. I have OCD issues. And, uh, you know, after you've washed your car and you're driving it, you try to avoid puddles and all that. But how long does that last? And because we live in a sinful world and we are sinful people, there are sins that sometimes have a tendency to cling to us, sins that we allow cling to, allow them to cling to us. And, and, and many, many times the reason we do is because we don't see the evil of the sin. Sin is very deceptive, isn't it? And the word here clings so closely in some translation says entangles us. This idea and this concept is that it obstructs, it constricts, it ensnares, it traps us. And there have been people who are better, greater, stronger than us spiritually who have somehow made decisions that, you know, I can live with this sin in my life, this pet sin, and it won't have any impact on my life. That is a deception. 
And I can't tell you in the last couple of weeks how many pastors I have heard of in ministry who have allowed sin to cling to their life to the point that it has tripped them up and they have lost their ministries because of sin. And you would think, how could a pastor do that? Because they're human just like you are. A little bit of pornography is not good for you. Right? A little bit of alcohol, in my opinion, is not beneficial. I mean, the Bible is constantly admonishing us to put aside those things that are, that are not relevant to our lives. And, and there are some things that we think we can exist a little bit with this and a little bit with that, and it's not going to really impact my life, but I'm convinced that any sin that exists in our lives has a tendency to cling so tightly to us that as we seek to run, it will actually trip us up, cause us to fall. And I'm not saying we can't get up, but there have been many who have allowed certain sins to exist in their lives. They have fallen, and they have not been able to get up, or after they've gotten up, they have lost the opportunity of ministry in certain aspects of their calling because of that failure and so he says resist sin's deception do not be deceived for God is not mocked you eventually will sow what you reap and then he says to us in that next little phrase and let us run with endurance and let us run with endurance it's interesting he said that after we reach for encouragement and remove all distractions, resistance, deception, we need to run with endurance. We need to continue to run. The idea herein, and let us run, is an active participation. It means to keep on running. It means that he is writing to people, to believers, who are already in the race. How do they qualify and how do they enter the race? They came to faith in Christ. And once they place their faith and trust in Christ, they're automatically put down on the field and they now had entered the race. And these people that he's writing to are people that have been running the race for quite some time. They're not novices. They're not new believers. They're people that have been running the race for quite some time. They have been running a fact, as a fact for so long that they are now weary and they are tired and they are discouraged. And many are thinking about throwing in the towel, as I've already said. But he admonishes them. He said, and let us run with endurance. One commentator called the word endurance steady determination. Steady determination. I like that. Some translations have the word patience here. I don't like that. Anybody here like patience? I don't like it. One of my downfalls is I am not very patient. Anybody want to admit that they're patient in here? Anybody say, I'm strong, patient? You're in for a trial, brother. Okay? As soon as you admit you're a patient guy, things are going to hit you, and here they come. The word patience is sometimes used here. But I think the word perseverance is also a good word here. Let us run with endurance. Let us run with perseverance. Let us run with a sturdy determ determination. Let us run all out giving everything we got. And when we think we don't have any more, we continue to run. To run with endurance. And then lastly, he says, the race that is set before us. You know, I took a look at that, and I thought, you know, what is he saying here in the race that is set before us? It means that all of us have been assigned a race. We have all been assigned a path. We've all been assigned a lane, so to speak, as, as we run the race. Um, 
It's interesting, we watched the skiers that were skiing during the Winter Olympics, and they had a certain lane that they were supposed to run in. You've been assigned a lane, a path. Uh, I want to say the word in Brazil is caminho, a, a direction. And, and notice it says, the race that is set. The ra- I, I know this is one word in the original, but you take the, the one word and divide it apart, a race that is set. What that tells me is that God has set a race already for you individually. He already has purposed a, a, a plan for your life, and he has set a race for you individually. Now, I know there are commonalities about our race. I know we share a lot of things together in a race, but there are circumstances that you may face that I'm not going to face. There are situations that you're going to experience that I'm not going to experience. There are trials that you're going to face that I may not experience or or trials that I may face that you're not going to experience. And so I have a personal track, a personal plan, a personal path that God has for me, and it's already been set by him. He's the sovereign God who is reigning and ruling on the throne, who sees my life from the beginning and the end all at the same time, and he has set my path. He has set my direction. He knows what's coming before it comes. Nothing takes God by surprise like it does us, and he knows what the circumstances and the situations and the temptations and the trials that I'm going to face. He set, and so I can't compare my path to your path because your path is different from mine, but I cannot also set my path for myself because God didn't give me that sovereignty or that sovereign rule over my life where I get to pick and choose what I experience and what I don't experience. Wouldn't that be great? Because if we all did, we'd all be living on easy street right now, wouldn't we? We'd all be living in mansions and drive, you know, Bentleys and have multi-billions of dollars in our account and we'd be all over the world and we wouldn't be here in this frozen tundra today. We'd be down in Florida where our prospective worship arts pastor is coming from this next week. Uh, You know, some of you have asked me, does he know what the weather's like up here? He's from the Midwest, so he knows. And he did tell me he's ready for seasonal change because in Florida it's always warm and always green. Well, da-da-da. Yeah, you need to be up here and experience some of this for us. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. You don't get to choose your path. I know that frustrates some of you. And you're probably wondering, why did this circumstance come into my life? Why is this situation here? Why am I experiencing this trial? Why is this tribulation? Why is this temptation? Why, why are things, I don't get to set that. Now, some of those are our own choosing, okay? Can't blame God for all of it. Some of our choices bring circumstances and consequences that. But run the path, run the race that God set for you. Notice it says, and let us run with endurance the race that is before us. The second part of that word, it's before us, meaning that it's visible for us. It's before us, it's exposed, it's revealed, it's visual. In other words, you can, you can see it. He's going to reveal it to you each step of the way. And if you know anything about experience of God, God doesn't show you the end of your life way before it gets there. He shows you one step at a time, one day at a time. And as, you know, what am I going to experience in 10 years from now? God says you couldn't handle it today if you knew. So I'm just going to reveal it to you one step at a time. So as you live your life one step at a time, being faithful today, as you go into tomorrow, you're faithful with tomorrow and faithful with tomorrow and faithful with the next day and the next day and the next day. And so we need to run the race 
that God has assigned to you. God's assigned to you a path, a race, a lane. And I'm not sure what circumstances and what situations and difficulties and hardships and trials and tests and temptations and all those are going to come. Some of them will have in common, but some of them will be very unique to you. Just embrace it and run the race that God has set before you to run. And be faithful and choose faith and trust the Lord and run it with all your might. So we need to foster these proper disciplines. Number two, we need to focus on supreme example. And there are three aspects about the example that I want us to see very quickly. We're going to look at verse two. He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, there he sees that one of the things we're to do is to identify the right standard. There's a standard that we need to identify here, and the standard is Jesus. Where does he tell us to look? Where? Looking to Jesus. We are looking to Jesus. Now, he just listed in chapter 11 all of these heroes of the faith, and there are some who want to just focus on those heroes of the faith, but they are not the standard. The supreme standard is Christ. While these others, other examples, these heroes of the faith, we may see their faith and may see their faithfulness and be inspired and encouraged by that, it is Jesus who we are to model. It's Jesus that we are to emulate. It is Jesus that we are to fix our attention on because Jesus is the only perfect standard. There is no other perfect standard because all other standards are not perfect. They have flaws. They are human beings, and human beings make mistakes. There was only one divine sovereign redeemer, and his name is Jesus. Looking to Jesus, fixing your eyes on him. Why? Because he's the founder, and he's the perfecter of our faith. Why do we fix our eyes on Jesus? Because he is, he is the author of our faith. I mean, without Christ, we wouldn't have faith. Without Christ, we wouldn't have salvation. That's what he means. But notice he's also the perfecter of our faith. It means that he is the finisher of our faith. It's, it, it's described, descriptive of Jesus being the, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He's the beginning and the end of our faith in Christ. He is, in other words, preeminent. He is preeminent. He is the one that is beyond comparison. He alone is the supreme example, and it is he alone that we fix our eyes on. Get your eyes off people. Stop looking at your parents. Stop looking at your brothers and sisters. Stop looking at your staff. Stop looking at your pastor. We're all flawless. We're not flawless. We are all, what's the opposite of flawless? We are all flawed. There you go. I have visions of grandeur of being flawless someday, but that's not going to happen, is it? There's no perfect standard other than Jesus. He exhibited perfect faith and perfect faithfulness. And he's going to talk about that. So identify the right standard. Keep your eyes on the right standard and then ensure the right perspective. He says in the second part of verse 2, who for the joy that was set before him in endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus had before him the end the entire time he was on the planet. He always had the end in focus. We talked about that a little bit last week. Christ came with the end already determined for him, and he always kept his sight on the finish line, which was the cross. 
And so it is Christ then who endured the agony of the cross and he despised the shame of that cross. What do you mean shame? Why was it shameful? Because he died a criminal's death. Sometimes I think in our culture today, we forget what it was like to die on the cross in the day and the time of Jesus. That only those who were criminals died on a cross. And when he was suspended in that, on that cross, those who were there except for his disciples were putting him to shame. They were saying he died a criminal's death. And it, shamed, it was intended to shame him. I mean, of all people, he took upon sin that was not his. He died in our place, took our sin upon him and chose to die in our place. And it says here that he, he, he disregarded that shame. He ran. Notice, how did he run, though, this race? What does it say? He ran with what? What's the word? Three letters. With what? He ran with what? Say it one more time. He ran with what? Joy. He ran with joy to the cross and the shame that was brought upon him through that cross. How do you do that? Unless you're Jesus. That's how he ran his race. He ran with joyful expectation of the promise that became him his because he exhibited the Father's attributes. Not only did he exhibit the Father's attributes, but he fulfilled the Father's will. Not only did he fulfill the Father's will and exhibit the Father's attributes, but he glorified God on earth. And it was because of that that he was inheritant of the promise that was his, preordained by God. And that's how we should run our race. We should run it with joy, with an expectation. It, we're not running for heaven. Heaven is already ours. Heaven is already ours. We're not running for heaven. We're not, that's not the finish. The finish line is that we are to, like Christ, exhibit the attributes of, of the Father, and we are to fulfill the will of the Father, and we are to bring glory to the Father as we run our race, and as we do it, we're to do it with the attitude of joy. You know, I heard, I heard this saying one time uh, that God loves a cheerful giver, but he accepteth from a grouch. Ever heard that? God loves a cheerful giver, but he accepteth from a grouch. You know, some of us are serving, we're a bunch of grumps, complaining and whining and moaning and bickering and snorting. Where's the joy? We are to run our race with joy, anticipating the promises that are already available and are going to be attributed to us in the end when we reach the finish line. Uh, you've tried the grumpy thing, the grumping thing, and the grumbling thing, and all that other, you know, woe is me thing. Try the joy thing for a while and see how that works. That's how Jesus ran, with joy. It says, can you believe that? Who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and he overcame the shame with joy. Didn't mean it was easy, but he did it joyfully with the right perspective. And the perspective means everything. Then thirdly, invest with a long-term view. Notice what happens and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Jesus, as I said earlier, always had the end in view. And the idea of the text here seems to suggest that not only is Jesus, not only was Jesus seated at the right hand of God on the throne, but he is presently seated at the right hand of God on the throne. He is presently there. He was seated there, and he is there. It's a position of honor. And as I said earlier, I think Jesus always had the long-term in view. He always lived for the eternal. Remember when, in Matthew chapter 4, when he was tempted by the devil? You remember that? We, we talked about that a couple of years ago. And while he was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, at the end of that, Satan came. And he tempted him. He said, I'll give you all these things if you'll just bow down and worship me. What was he doing? He was tempting Jesus in every way that we've been tempted. He's saying to Jesus, you can have all of the promises that God gave to you, and you can avoid the cross. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to die. You don't go, have to go through the humiliation of, and the shame of the cross. You can have all. I'll give them to you if you'll just bow down and worship me. And he said, no. Why? What gave him power and strength to do that? He knew that in spite of all the suffering that he would have to endure, he knew that at the end, there would be incredible rewards, a crown, and our salvation. Aren't you glad he chose that rather than the immediacy of the earthly rewards in this life? He took the long-term in view. Aren't you glad that he took the long-term in view? It's for our benefit, And I think sometimes we have a tendency to cast our eyes on the short-term view of things and to spend our lives for the immediacy rather than the eternal. And we need to get our eyes off the present life and the present world and all that has to offer and look to the eternal world that is already ours through faith in Christ and to invest in that rather than in the now. We can have all this stuff here. But when you die, he with the most toys doesn't win in the end. He dies. And he doesn't take any of these toys with him. He leaves them here for other people to enjoy in the now. And so we need to take the long-term view of things and invest in the longevity of the eternal rewards rather than the temporary rewards of this life. To focus on the supreme example who is Jesus For Jesus is the supreme example, and fix your eyes on him as you run the race. Remember a couple of years ago when I was running, I was visiting my parents in Virginia, and I found a place I was going to run there, and I I had the uh, 10-mile run, and I I got up that morning and started to run, and and I was at a pretty good pace, and I thought I was doing pretty good, and there's another guy who came in, and we kind of, you know, hooked up, and we're running side by side. Well, I was determined I was going to run at his pace. That lasted for about a, two or three miles. And uh, I knew I couldn't keep up. <laughs> you know what I did? I took a turn. <laughs> I let him go. Because <laughs> there was no way in the world I was going to keep up with him. I just couldn't do it. And I know, I know it's hard for us sometimes to think that we can keep pace with Jesus. Because he is the supreme example. But he is our example. And we need to run the race that he has set before us, looking to Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Don't take your eyes off Jesus. You'll be disappointed every time. And then lastly, we need to fortify against fatigue. To fortify against fatigue. Have you ever been tired? Have you ever been tired? I was talking to, to some guys outside and 
we were talking about working, what, six hour, uh, 10 hour, for six days, you work 10 hours a day, for six days, so then when he gets home, he just, he just tired. You ever been really, really tired spiritually? As I said already, already, these people are tired. They're exhausted. And so he said, you need to strengthen yourselves. There needs to come, come a time when we need to fortify ourselves. We need to strengthen ourselves. And he's encouraging them to do that because he says, if you don't fortify yourself, you are going to throw in the town and walk away. You're going to quit. Notice he said, he says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. He, he says, determined to follow Christ and follow Christ alone. It's almost a repeat of what he said in the last verse. But notice the word consider. For a moment, he says, for a moment, he says, have an accurate estimate. Accurately estimate the suffering of Jesus. Sit down and spend some time in honest comparison as to how Christ suffered and how you were suffering. You think you're suffering? Look at Jesus and how he suffered. Because if you do an honest comparison, an honest estimation of how Christ suffered and how you're suffering, it compares not to his suffering. You think you got it bad? Because I, I think sometimes when we have a, we, we try to compare ourselves to others and say, so, well, they don't have it as bad as I have it, so we have a tendency to have a pity party. So he says, compare your suffering to the suffering of Christ. How can you have a pity party? He says, consider Christ who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Carefully consider Jesus, his perfection, his, sinliness, his sinlessness in a way that, that he died in all of the hostility that came against him. Never once did he say, I can't take it anymore. Not once did he say, Father, stop this. Not one time did he throw in the towel. Not once did he quit. Even when he was in the garden and he was praying, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. I know what's coming around the corner. I know the agony that I'm about to experience, and yet I'm willing to die to myself and to fulfill the intent and the purpose for which you have for me. You know, when we honestly compare apples to apples between Christ and us, how does your suffering compare to Jesus' suffering? It doesn't, does it? Number two, defend against burnout. I think once you make that honest, accurate estimate, you need to defend against the burnout because it says, so that you may not grow weary, so that those of you who are in Christ, after you evaluate and determine how much Christ actually suffered, that you may not grow weary. The word not is a double negative. It means there, there is no circumstance, there is no situation, there is, there is no condition that would justify us growing weary. Now, we, we have a tendency to say, well, you know, if you only went through what I went through, then, then let, let me tell you my story. <laughs> and this will justify why I made these decisions. He says, no, there is no circumstance. There is no situation. There is no condition that should justify that so that you may not grow weary. The word weary means exhaustion to the point of breaking one's spirit so that you quit. There were some people in the church that he's writing to that were so exhausted physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually that they were on the verge of quitting. 
They had given and given and served and served and done and done and, and, and experienced persecution upon persecution upon persecution that they were just ready to walk away. And he says, but don't grow weary. Don't quit. Don't reach the point in which you're bankrupt. Defend yourself against burnout. Don't lose heart, he says in the next little phrase, or grow weary. Do not grow weary, but he says also do not grow faint-hearted. And the faint-hearted word there is the word that means uh, uh, fatigue mentally. It is a faint-hearted of the mind. It, 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 it is indicative of someone that is losing faith. It is caused by exertion of our own natural resources. It, it is indicative of someone that has sought to run the race in their own natural strength. And as a result of that, they have not been able to reach the finish line. And every time, I think, we try to run our race in our own natural energy, in our own natural resources, we're always going to run out of strength. And that must be avoided. And we're going to look at next week how we might be able to avoid that. But I want to close with one, this one story. It's, uh, it's entitled, Finish the Race. Uh, here's the story. At 7 p.m. on October 20th in 1968, a few thousand spectators remained in Mexico City Olympic Stadium. It was almost dark. The last of the marathon runners were stumbling across the finish line. Finally, the spectators heard a wall of sirens on police cars. As eyes turned to the gate, a lone runner wearing the colors of Tanzania staggered into the stadium. His name was John Stephen Aquari. He was the last contestant to finish the 26-mile contest. His leg had been injured in a fall and was bloodied and bandaged from his ankle to his knee. He hobbled the final lap around the track. The spectators rose and applauded him as he crossed the finish line, as if he were the winner of the race. After he had crossed the finish line, someone asked him why he had not quit. He replied simply, my country did not send me 7,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 7,000 miles to finish the race. God doesn't expect us to win the race. That's, it's, it's not that kind of competition. But he expects us to finish the race. You have an assignment. You have a set course. You have an assigned path. And you individually are to run your race. And you are to run it well. And one of these days you're going to stand before the Father and give an account of the life that you lived and the race that you ran. He's not going to ask you, did you win the race? He's going to ask you to be accountable to finish your race. Because you see, we're not in competition with each other. I mean, trust me, in the world that I live in, a world of pastors and preachers, we have a tendency sometimes to compare ourselves with each other. But, but it's, it's not a comparison thing. It's not how far ahead of me or how far behind I am or any of that kind of stuff. It's not about how you're running and I'm running. It's about how we're running as we follow the example of Jesus. And it's about how we are to finish the race that God has set before us at the pace 
that exhibits the attributes of the Father, that obeys the will of the Father, and that glorifies the person of the Father. How are you running your race? Are you running in such a way that you're going to cross the finish line? Are you about to give up? Or will you endure to the end? It's not about being the strongest or the smartest or the most talented. But it's about endurance. It's about faith. And it's about faithfulness. How are you running your race? Let's pray. Set.